This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, do Canadians agree with the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls inquiry that there is an ongoing genocide in this country? A new poll shows public opinion on that question is all over the map. Also, Quebec's controversial Bill 21 has passed, the concern now for religious freedom in that province. Ahead of a decision on Trans Mountain, a new report looks at how we can break Canada's pipeline logjam. We now know how much money Calgary spent in pursuing an Olympic bid. The latest on the protests in Hong Kong and why the stakes are so high. Plus, a new study on sexting finds a link to some concerning behaviors and other issues. Well, it's been almost two weeks. Uh, since the report came out, the inquiry, the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And a lot of the debate since then has focused on a single word in that report, the word genocide. I think it has distracted us from some of the other findings and recommendations in this report. And I've made the argument that, that perhaps that was a needless distraction. Maybe we didn't need to use this word. I wrote a piece for Global News about 10 days ago, suggesting that maybe genocide wasn't the right word to use in this context. And that perhaps it gives people a reason if they don't agree with the use of that word to disregard the rest of the report. And that could prove to be counterproductive. I can speak firsthand to how polarized this all is because I have been getting an insane amount of response to that column ever since. It was over a week ago when it first ran at globalnews.ca. Some are in agreement. Others, much less so, that somehow my refusal to use the word genocide is then, I guess, the equivalent of genocide denial, perhaps even racism on my part. So is it helpful to have this kind of a polarized debate? Where, where, do, where do Canadians stand on this? It's a very difficult question, isn't it, for Canadians to come to grips with? Are we guilty of genocide? Remember, in the report, it refers to an ongoing genocide. It was a really interesting new poll out done for the Association of Canadian Studies. And it does find that about half of Canadians agree that there has been genocide against Indigenous Canadians. But in terms of what form that took or whether it is something that is still going on today, there is a lot of disagreement even amongst those who are comfortable with using the word. When did it occur? Who was responsible? Not a lot of consensus. Well, joining us to talk more about this poll, and I also want to get into the issue of uh, Bill 21 in Quebec, uh, which passed late last night, as as it turns out. But very pleased to welcome to the program here today, Jack Jedwabi is president and CEO of the Association for Canadian Studies. Jack, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. No problem, Rob. You know, like I say, I mean, this is a difficult and emotional question, but why why did you think it was important to see how Canadians are feeling about this? Well, we're an organization committed to uh, promoting knowledge about Canada's history. Uh, That's our principal mandate. 
And as such, uh, given that this particular issue has a powerful impact on how we understand our past and how the past connects to the present, uh, it seemed like it was important enough to, for us to consult Canadians about their feelings, views, and, and knowledge about the issue. It seems, I don't know if you call it a contradiction, but it seems, does seem like a bit of a paradox in this poll where you've got, as I say, just over half, 53%. Uh, agree that there has been genocide in Canada, but 71% say they are proud of Canada's history. Is is that a paradox? Yeah, it is a paradox. And in fact, even the people who are most inclined to affirm it's a genocide, because it's a, this poll has the sort of four-point scale of strongly agree and strongly disagree. So those individuals say they strongly agree that it's a genocide. Still, 53% of that group are proud of Canada's history. Uh, and that's because they're not making, in my view anyways, the connection between those two issues, as though it's sort of two streams that are flowing in different places or different sides. Uh, the reported genocide has not necessarily bearing on their sense of pride in Canada's history. And, and I think it also speaks to uh, when and where and how this genocide occurred, around which there's considerable confusion, because if you read the report, uh, the blame for the genocide is, is, squares, is, is squarely with the, with the government or previous governments. And yet it, when Canadians in this poll are asked who's to blame for injustices towards Indigenous peoples, only 1% blame the government. Uh, 32% say it's the British and French founders of Canada. 25% say it's Catholic and Protestant churches. Uh, 21% say it's all Canadians. And 1% say it's the government. So there's a real disconnect, uh, and probably several disconnects, in terms of uh, what the report concludes. Uh, and the report makes several important observations and documents some very tragic situations, but its conclusion and its use of the word genocide, I think, have created a lot of confusion uh, with amongst even those Canadians who will affirm that there's some genocide, not being able to articulate what that means or when it occurred or at, uh, at whose hands it's occurred. Well, I, I think part of the confusion is that the, the word genocide, I, I think in the minds of a lot of Canadians, is a very, a very specific sort of connotation. We would think of something maybe on the scale, obviously, of the Holocaust, uh, perhaps what happened 25 years ago in, in Rwanda. So that was part of this poll, then, is to get a sense of what Canadians think of when they hear that term, or what kind of responses did you get? Uh, so when we ask about uh, whether people can elaborate on what they think when they hear the term genocide, uh, a lot of people evoke the idea of mass murders, uh, killings, etc., uh, very few people talked about or referred to the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide. Probably about 6% mentioned the Holocaust and 3 or 4 the Rwandan genocide. There's just a lot of answers involving mass killings or murders and so forth. So again, I, I mean, some of this suggests that there's some education needed about what genocide is or isn't. But to be fair to the report, it did uh, specify that it wasn't referring to uh, genocide on the order of a Holocaust or a Rwandan uh, genocide. Uh, it was sort of some other... Uh, type of genocide that's consistent with population transfers and and resettlement. And so uh, on the issue itself, when we asked what form uh, this genocide took amongst those who uh, indicated that or felt there was a genocide, 36% were unable to answer. Uh, 17% said it was colonialization or loss of lands. And another 15% referred to residential schools. So those are the things they associated with the genocide. Again, suggesting that this has probably created a lot of confusion about what the meaning is or isn't of genocide.
Right. And, and I mean, if, if we disagree or we remain confused about this, I mean, this is a pretty fundamental question. I mean, that this is, if it is true, then this has got to be a part of what's written about Canadian history, that, that genocide occurred and that the government of Canada or subsequent uh, governments were responsible for that. that. That's a pretty big change in how we view Canadian history, potentially, isn't it? It would be, although according to the poll, no one is blaming the government of Canada other than 1% of those surveyed for being responsible for injustices that have been committed historically towards Aboriginal or Indigenous peoples. So, um, yeah, again, I don't know that we've created any light uh, in this thing. There's more confusion. Uh, and we'll have to see going forward where that takes us. But I, uh, my, my, my view on this is that... Uh, Right now, we're debating the word genocide uh, rather than focusing on what's in the report. I don't know that that was or wasn't the objective of the author's report, because I suspect they wanted to capture public attention, and that was a way of doing it. But I'm not sure you've captured public attention in terms of people concentrating on the substance of the report and the recommendations, rather than having debate about what genocide is. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Uh, Jack, I also wanted to touch on uh, Bill 21 in Quebec. This this passed last night. There's been a lot of debate, not just in Quebec, but across Canada, as to whether uh, this kind of thing is in keeping with, with our pluralistic society and, and how we define the question of secularism, at least as this bill defines it. Secularism means keeping religious symbols out of the public sector, meaning individuals Individuals, teachers, police officers, other public servants would be banned from wearing religious symbols. Now, you believe this this bill goes way too far? Yeah, I do believe this bill goes way too far, and clearly, uh, uh, it's a violation of our uh, charters of rights, both the Quebec Charter of Rights and the Canadian Charter of Rights. Despite the use of the notwithstanding clause, use of the notwithstanding clause to adopt the bill, which was. Uh, invoked uh, yesterday and adopted yesterday uh, doesn't make it less a violation of the Charter. Uh, and certainly it's not consistent with uh, North America's notions of pluralism or as regards the idea of secularism. Uh, the United States describes itself as a place that separates church and state that would never, never consider uh, such measures. So I think it's very unfortunate uh, that we find ourselves in this situation. There's no real justification for uh, the measures that have been adopted there where no police wearing religious symbols in Quebec, uh, no judges, uh, no government lawyers or notaries, uh, no prison guard officials, and yet we decide to legislate on a hypothetical based on largely people's insecurities and fears. And a lot of the polling we've done is showing quite clearly that uh, one of the main drivers for this thing is uh, people happen, happening to dislike hijabs. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's not about uh, crucifixes or crosses. Actually, the majority of Quebecers are quite comfortable with those religious symbols. Well, yeah, I mean, the law is not written in a way to target any one specific religion, but it kind of feels as though it is. But it's, it's something that does impact potentially uh, a lot of other religions um, and, and even people who are not religious at all. I, I think, the, you know, the importance of freedom of religion, that protects non-belief as well. And I mean, it's something we, we should all take very seriously, I would think. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, there's a stark contradiction in this particular legislation. You know, the uh, leader of the New Democratic Party is a turban-wearing uh, individual, uh, Jagmeet Singh. Uh, he could become Prime Minister of Canada. I, mean, I happen not to think that that's going to be the outcome of the next election, but, he didn't, you know, it's a, he's, he's eligible for that office. Yet could not be a public school teacher in Quebec with, under the current legislation. You know, so there's some real incongruity there, because in Quebec, one of the arguments that's been made is that... Uh, 
such uh, individuals that are teaching in schools have this uh, preponderant influence on their students by virtue of of the ideology that they uh, carry based on the hijab or or uh, head cover for Jews, the kippah or or cross. Yet, you know, you could have uh, uh, a prime minister who wears a turban, and actually in Montreal, uh, where the opposition leader wears a kippah, a Jewish head cover, um, he could be mayor, and there's no law banning preventing him from doing that. So, you know, again, these incongruities and mixed messages, I don't think have been particularly helpful, but. You know, the government has been very careful in uh, in uh, nurturing and cultivating uh, public opinion so that it uh, supports these measures, and they've made it a very Quebec thing. In other words, it's the, it's the Quebec thing to do or to support, so to speak, and to be against it is uh, to be uh, contradicting Quebec's purported interests. Yeah. Well, we'll see where the debate goes from here. Jack, we'll leave it there. Uh, folks can uh, find you, follow you on Twitter, at Canadian Studies. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate no problem, it. Rob. All right, take care. Uh, That is Jack Jedwab. He is uh, President and CEO of the Association for Canadian Studies on Twitter, as mentioned, at Canadian Studies. Their website is acs-aec.ca. So some thoughts from him on uh, this debate in Quebec, but also talking about this survey they've released on how Canadians feel about genocide. And the public opinion is all over the map here. And there was a lot of confusion here. So, look, as, as much as I've been dragged over the weekend by some as some kind of genocide denier or racist or both or worse, I think Jack makes a very, very important point. that How are we going to be able to move forward on the recommendations in, in this report that can actually make a measurable difference in the lives of so many? If we can't get past this, certainly those who wrote this report must have known that that was going to be at best a difficult sell. To many Canadians. And, and it, it, it is a distraction from the rest of the report. And of course it is. Why, why shouldn't it be? It's hard to imagine a bigger question for any country to come to grips with. Whether we are guilty of genocide. Uh, my friend Matt Gurney had a piece uh, late last week for the National Post. Which really underscored the, the strange absurdity of it all. Where you've got the Prime Minister acknowledging in one breath that we are guilty of genocide. And then in the next breath, he's talking about banning plastic straws. And what other situation would that seem normal? And what other country would you have the leader of that country come out and say that genocide has occurred or is occurring? And oh, by the way, got to do something about these straws. Right? There seems to be that real disconnect. And I, I see the reaction and the debate and the polarization and the name-calling. None of this is helpful. None of this is helpful to suggest that maybe genocide isn't the right word to use here is not to disregard the important findings uh, of the report or the shameful indifference that has existed on the part of previous Canadian government. And certainly the prime minister, the current prime minister, doesn't get to pick and choose either, does he? To say that there was a genocide but no longer is. Well, that's his interpretation. That's not what the report is saying. Or to suggest maybe it's more cultural genocide as opposed to genocide, genocide. Again, that's not what the report says. Hey, by the way, a new poll out today from Ipsos on the Trans Mountain Pipeline finds 60% support, 60 60% support in British Columbia. Yes, in the province of B.C., support for the project is now double the opposition to the project, 60% to 29%. 
very encouraging ahead of what is expected to be, uh, I guess, yet another uh, approval announcement uh, from the federal government regarding the Trans Mountain Pipeline project. Hopefully, that announcement will quickly uh, lead to shovels in the ground. We've been hearing reports in recent days about uh, large amounts of materials being moved into place for that to happen. But, you know, it's been uh, over two years, about two and a half years. November of 2016 is when the federal government first approved this project. So even if tomorrow's announcement is what we expect it to be, and even if we get shovels in the ground, we're still a long ways away from this actually being complete. And in the meantime, it's not as though we've got other projects in Canada that are moving ahead either. So we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we do seem to have a problem in Canada when it comes to building this sort of energy infrastructure. And I think there's a very real fear that coming down the road with C-48 and C-69 coming into force, that might make it even more difficult. Well, a new report out today from the McDonald-Laurier Institute looks at ways of getting past this. The report is called Breaking the Pipeline Logjam. Joining us to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome the program, Joseph Connell, he's Program Manager for Aboriginal Canada and the Natural Resource Economy at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Joseph, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Right, so I guess, I mean, even if we get that, that favorable announcement tomorrow, when we start to see things move forward on, on Trans Mountain, that, that doesn't mean that this, this log jam has gone away, has it? Yeah, no, and I'm glad, I'm glad that you mentioned that. You know, like, uh, Canadians are looking at that June 18th deadline for the federal cabinet to approve, and most people think they're going to do that. But, yeah, it's, gonna, it's a lot before we see shovels in the ground. And, you know, and uh, what we discussed in the paper, you know, we still have Bill C-69, Bill C-48, and then possibly Bill... C-262, which is the bill that makes uh, Canadian law in harmony with the UN declaration, which might have impact on resource projects, still to go. So uh, definitely. Uh, w- one of the things, I guess, for, for our paper, uh, we, uh, <clears throat> it's, it's a paper that we released in preparation for the election uh, for all the parties to look at. It's called a mandate for Canada. And this is kind of the, fir- the first uh, paper coming out from that and looking at, uh, you know, ways that we can overcome this problem, which I think, uh, and I think a lot of your listeners and people out West would know that, um, you know, the majority of Canadians do see as a national, national crisis. Well, let's talk about, yeah, the, the, the situation as it stands now. I think, you know, we look at, at what C-69 could mean or, or these other pieces of legislation, but those haven't even come into force yet. So we're already dealing with a problematic status quo. What, what is the cause of this, this logjam? Well, in, like in terms of uh, in terms of some of the regulation, like like say you look at the United States, where the approval process is so much more streamlined and just so much quicker uh, than Canada. I think uh, there was a, a major study looking at that. Uh, we can see uh, pipeline projects approved in Canada taking about you know sometimes eleven years. So I think uh, um, it's, it's usually I guess where the where we're seeing the logjam in terms of things we can control in terms of. Uh, uh, regulation that provides uh, kind of that certainty to investors and to uh, resource proponents. Uh, you know, these are long-term ventures; they're high uh, capital investments. Uh, these these uh, these companies want to have some kind of certainty and stability for their investment. Uh, otherwise, they're going to go somewhere else um, where the price is right, right? And that's what we're dealing with too. As I guess a big issue, and I'm sure uh, is familiar to, to your listeners, uh, the, the, the price differential for uh, for Western oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, you know we're not being able to uh, to 
to take our oil out to foreign markets is uh, having that impact. And so, and so we also have a situation where, you know, the United States, you know, usually our partner, our market for oil and gas has now become our competitor. Uh, the United States, uh, it's kind of racked up under, uh, you know, President uh, Trump. But but it, it but it actually it did start under Obama that we did see uh, a lot of projects being built uh, during during that administration. So it's just in general, I think the uh, you know we have a lot to learn. Just looking at the United States, how what's going on? Uh, not necessarily we don't have to mimic you know the, the Trump White House or what they're doing. There's a lot of uh, Canadians uh, definitely value a lot of the environmental regulations that we have, but we, but we have kind of world class standards, so it shouldn't really be a problem. Right. And, and yet it seems to be, I, I guess, I mean, the courts are an issue. And it, it, even in the U.S., we've seen some court delays uh, for Keystone XL and, and Line 3. But uh, certainly, I mean, the, the courts have been one of the main reasons why it's it's taken so long on, on Trans Mountain. Obviously, we had court rulings cause problems for Northern Gateway. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's unfair to blame the courts. Maybe it's it falls to the politicians who, who need to ensure that they're doing things as, as they are. But obviously, yeah. legal delays have been a big problem, haven't they? Yeah, like, you know, um, you know to, to, be, to be fair to the courts, you know, they're interpreting the law, especially the Constitution, that, you know, we do have a pretty robust, uh, you know, legal duty to consult and accommodate First Nations. And, you know, I guess one thing to stress with this paper, I guess, that in our study is that by and large, you do have mostly First Nations uh, that have buy-in. You know, they're supporting these pipelines. They're, they're signing impact and, and mutual benefit agreements mm-hmm. along the pipelines. It, it's, it's, uh, honestly, it's oftentimes the provinces, and they, they bring these issues back to court. Uh, but in terms of First Nations, I think, you know, in our paper we argue that, you know, in terms of, like, um, at McDonald-Laurier, we can mainly only speak for the federal role because uh, as a think tank, that's what we do. And I think that the federal government... Uh, could definitely um, clarify duty to consult, um, you know, which First Nations that they need, you know, which groups that, uh, that these resource proponents have to consult when they go out. Like, the federal government definitely has a role, the parliament has a role to uh, clarify and make much more uh, streamlined, I guess, the duty to consult. Um, also, I think uh, it, this is more of a particular issue in, in British Columbia where, um, you know, you've seen uh, changes on Indigenous communities where uh, it's a, kind of a longstanding change where you have First Nations that um, are starting to have problems, uh, like more problems with, with their with their elected uh, band councils that are under the Indian Act. And they, especially in BC, they have a tradition of hereditary elders and different bodies. And you know, we want to res- we want to respect that. Uh, but but what, what what happens uh, with the problem is is that. You know, when a resource proponent goes to a community, uh, it's harder to figure out who exactly do we speak with. You know, when you think of the, you know, the, the, the companies themselves, they're not qualified to really wade between those kind of governance issues. So, um, you know, they, they will generally, they will generally uh, sign agreements with the Indian Act government expecting that that government has consulted internally. So what we argue is that First Nations themselves internally need to figure out those issues so that, uh, the companies, you know, um, you know, basically the crown, the crown knows uh, who to consult uh, on the issues, and so that you know we're avoiding these these uh, long protracted court battles. Well, and, and you mentioned the idea of uh, you know an ownership stake, and I think maybe that's been one of the silver linings in in uh, the owners of this pipeline walking away is that that now the door is open to those those 
those kinds of partnerships, the idea of having First Nations not just participate in this project, but actually own a stake in this project. I mean, that could end up being a real win-win, couldn't it? I definitely, you know, we definitely, we're seeing that. And, uh, you know, we have First Nations that in the past, they would kind of accept impact and benefit agreements that would have some lay-aside contracts and some jobs yeah. and some maybe training funding. And I'm not trying to disparage that. Those are very important. But you have First Nations now that, 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 are, that, that are demanding more uh, in terms of their involvement. And, and like, you know, and like you said, it's, it is like, it's a game changer in that sense that, uh, you know, the First Nations themselves, uh, it increases the buy-in from them. And, that, and especially over the long term, that if they, if they, if they you know, if they're sharing in the profit that, that, that the projects are making, you're definitely going to have that kind of long-term, long-term certainty uh, for the companies that, when they're dealing with, with First Nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other factor, and this report touches on it too, is how the environmental movement has really zeroed in on pipelines. You know, I mean, uh, a decade ago when we got the original uh, Keystone Pipeline built to the U.S., the Alberta Clipper Pipeline built to the U.S., pipelines were not quite the focal point that they they became somewhere along the way. And and I guess a big reason for you know this logjam is the concerted effort by environmental groups to to try to block these projects. Yeah, and uh, and in particular. You know, it's like, and you know, and I'm sure, you know, your listeners and you're aware, you know, it, it's, it's zeroing in on the Alberta oil sands in particular. It's not other oil. It's just looking at this and for some reason deciding, I guess, uh, for all kinds of strategic reasons on their part, it just, it, you know, the, the oil sands don't look as pretty. They're easier to, to, to get attention to that, that, that they're focusing on that. And so, you know, and, and their arms reach, they're, sorry, they're, they're, uh, they have a long arm, uh, that, that reaches even to the United States. A lot of their campaigns that we've seen, you know, and we've seen uh, the kind of the documentation that people like uh, Vivian Krauss and others ha- have shown how that uh, environmental groups are, are having this kind of impact. And that, like, that's one of the recommendations that we make is that, that uh, the government needs to kind of take a side and look into this, really investigate this. You know, one suggestion was a parliamentary inquiry into it. Uh, at the federal level, I know that's something that uh, the Premier Jason Kenney in Alberta had recommended. We, and in the paper, we argue kind of similar uh, thing on that. Uh, the other aspect of this, and this is also what's uh, really uh, too bothering and angering a lot of uh, Indigenous people, is that you have environmental groups that are going to communities and uh, kind of, I don't know what the term is, just uh, getting very involved and kind mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, some First Nations get use the term infiltrate, they're kind of getting into the communities and trying to direct those First Nations uh, to oppose pipelines. And then it's usually what happens is it's kind of fair weather friends issue because once the First Nation, you know, uh, makes it more vocal that, you know, they, they support the project and they support its benefits, then the environmental groups kind of go away. So there's definitely a concern about that. And I think it's, the you know, the long-term impact of, you know the anti-oil sands campaign and and uh, and narrative that we've seen, and I think it's kind of it's bearing fruit now to the point where uh, you know we're seeing all these projects stalled, uh, scuttled, or killed over the last couple of years. Um, you know, even natural gas <laughs> projects, right, are still are having some problems. So you know, definitely, we think that the environmental groups there needs to be. We need to see what's going on there, and I think uh, Canadians need to be aware of. Of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, people can read this report for themselves. It's up at McDonald Laurier.ca. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much.
All right, take care. That is uh, Joseph Quinnell. Uh, he's a program manager at the McDonald Laurier Institute, co-author of this report, Breaking the Pipeline Logjam. Let's hope so. So we knew all along, or at least should have known all along, that um, there, it was going to cost money to explore the idea of hosting the Olympics. Even before you get to submitting and, uh, an official bid, there was still money you got to spend. So the whole process leading up to a bid can get to be pretty expensive. And that doesn't guarantee anything. Now, the whole act of hosting the Olympics, well, that's a price tag on a much bigger scale. Uh, but it does cost millions of dollars to, to explore uh, and to build a possible Olympic bid. So we knew that this was going to cost money. And I suppose now that uh, Calgarians have resoundingly rejected the idea of hosting the Olympics, we've all kind of moved on, uh, that, that money was spent, money we're not going to get back. So for, for months now, though, the question has been, well, how much did we spend? Right? What was the final price tag for exploring this bid? Where did that money go? And for some reason, it's taken until now to get that information. Uh, so basically, just under $7 million was spent on the bid that represents about half of the 14.6 million dollar budget that was set aside for the bid process so there's the question why it took so long to get this information to calgarians but there's also now the question of whether that was money well spent and i played for you a couple of sound bites the mayor and and um, council ward southern for example saying well it wasn't all money wasted that some of the uh, issues that were explored leading up to, to the bid, uh, that there was some valuable information gleaned from that. But of course, now as the city goes through a, a pretty tough financial crunch and the need to find savings, that $7 million sure would have been useful. So what do we make of it all now, looking back and what we've learned through this report? Well, joining us uh, for some reaction, very pleased to welcome to the program, Aaron Waite, who was the communications lead with No Calgary Olympics. Aaron, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Thank you very much. Um, I mean, how do you think we should look at this now? I mean, should we have just assumed that it was going to be money spent and, and that's that? Or is it worth asking whether this needed to be spent? Yeah, for for me, all through that process, uh, there were some frustrations with how that question was posed about whether we should bid for the Olympics. And, and what wasn't considered is what else we might have done or what those opportunity costs would be. And, of course, we had the glaring uh, example of what that opportunity cost was when a day after the plebiscite, uh, we, you know, it was learned publicly that there was a very serious property tax issue. And, mm-hmm. and so the time spent not dealing with that property tax issue is something we now see the side effect of. And, and that's a cost of having done the, gone after that bid. Right. Um, and it wasn't just money spent by the city. I mean, all told, the money from the province, from the feds, I think we're looking at, what, 17 or $18 million. Right. And so what I would have liked to see in, the, in this report is, is a real uh, serious consideration of what was done well, what wasn't, what was effective. If, if we were going to take on another big project, I, I would hope there'd be learnings from that one in terms of how to manage that effectively and how to ensure we get value as a city. Yeah, there's no 
reflection then in that sense is there no trying to understand that you know maybe we didn't make the right decision maybe we we were a little too optimistic when it came to going down this path it it seems like it kind of feels like there there's an effort to put the most positive spin on this that yes we spent this money but um you know that that it, it did tell us some important things well, for sure. When you read the report on the benefits, there's there's benefits listed like learning some things about some gaps in the city. Well, is that a benefit if there's no plan to actually close those gaps around accessibility or, or the other things outlined? So it's only a benefit if you then take that new information, that new knowledge, and act on it. So where's that effort or plan? Mm-hmm. And I guess the other point that, that you've made today is that you know, sure, we can look at the dollars spent and we can account for those. But in terms of all of the uh, attention, all of the focus, everything that went into working on the Olympic bid, um, did, did that take away from our efforts uh, in, in marketing the city and trying to, to attract different kinds of uh, events or conferences or businesses? I mean, it's tough to put a price tag on, on that distraction, isn't there? For sure. To me, you could say there was a full year lost on those efforts to rebuild our city or take our city in, in the new direction that it, it really must go. And, and that's, that's a real concern because this transition's tough. It's hard on people. We have to get through an economic difficult time. Well, stalling that out for another year is just a real strain on people. And and so there's a real cost there of not moving the city forward for a year while you're meeting for hundreds of hours talking about a project. And, you know, especially when they set their own milestones, their own criteria of what would what should make the process go forward, they missed every one of those milestones, every one of those commitments, and they never did call it off. So I'd like to see someone report on that and the governance and the processes that were uh, put in place, because if there's another chance to swing for the fences and do something really big and exciting for this city, I want to know we have a council that can handle it. Yeah. In terms of the question, then, of of spending money to investigate the possibility of something, maybe, maybe an Olympics, maybe something else, and, and we look at this dilemma now where do you investigate it, do you spend the money to gather the facts and then put it as a question to Calgarians, or do you put it as a question and, and then only start to do that work if there's there's a mandate? So it sounds like you're heading to the recent Denver decision, which was uh, an excellent process. They were a a very small group of people, similar to our situation, worked very hard to get on a ballot in Denver the uh, proposition that Denver cannot consider an Olympic bid without first getting uh, public support. And so some people are saying, well, that means they'll never host the Olympics. But maybe that just means they would do it better, or they would get private investment and sponsorship money to do that initial assessment before public dollars are put in, and and any of those things would be good outcomes. So I applaud Denver, and and I think um, we need to take a serious look at at when and how we ask the community uh, for, you know, support for a major endeavor. Do you think that's something Calgary should look at? 
I, I would be very comfortable with that. Yeah. But we also need, you know, whether man on the street voting on, on something is, in, is uh, the right thing, depending on the level of information available, is a second question. So, you know, we've, we've elected a council to, to make decisions for our city, and I'm totally comfortable with that. But then I want to see good processes. I want to see appropriate governance. And, and none of those things were uh, done well. In, in my mind in this particular process. So so there's some learning there that I would love to see come out of this. Yeah, yes, I, mean, I think some important points to consider as we uh, digest this information. Aaron, appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thank you very much. All right, that is Aaron Waite, who was the communications lead uh, with the group No Calgary Olympics. So they still have some questions uh, about this, right? How much of this money really truly needed to be spent? It, can maybe argue that at least it wasn't more, could have been worse perhaps. But how do we know for sure that we got value for this? Where's the other side of it though, right? To try to put a positive spin on the money spent, okay, fine. But what about the other side of it, as she says, those, those questions about why we went down this path in the first place? Or maybe how we uh, avoid potentially going down that path again? I mean, we're talking today about the two million or so taken to the streets of Toronto. In a celebratory mood, it's a much different situation, but very similar sized crowds in Hong Kong as these protests continue against this extradition law. And not only is the world starting to notice what's happening in Hong Kong, but it appears as though maybe the protesters are making headway. Hong Kong's leader has suspended the bill and apologized for bringing it forward, but uh, it, there, there is still that threat hanging over Hong Kong, that this really hasn't gone away, and a lot of concern about the influence mainland China has over Hong Kong's leadership. So it has been remarkable to see the images uh, of people taking to the streets in Hong Kong, and certainly uh, I think you can argue something that does entail some risk. We know that the Chinese regime does not take kindly to protest, and this sort of thing certainly wouldn't be tolerated in Beijing, how much longer are they going to let it go on in Hong Kong? So where does this all go from here? And I guess the other question is, does the rest of the world have a role to play? Do countries like Canada or the U.S. have a role to play in, in helping the people of Hong Kong get this message across and to help them protect what freedoms they still have? Well, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program Sarah Cook, a senior research analyst at Freedom House, director of the China Media Bulletin, also author of The Battle for China's Spirit on Religious Freedom in China, much more at freedomhouse.org. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks. My pleasure. Let's talk about the situation that Hong Kong finds itself in, and, and Freedom House has its annual Freedom of the World report. Hong Kong still remains ranked as as partly free, so... Since China took Hong Kong over just uh, over 20 years ago, what, what has changed? What has remained the same in Hong Kong? Well, I think what's really been noticeable has been the change because conditions have declined in, in clear ways. And on a different report that Freedom House um, had been publishing on press freedom, back in the day, Hong Kong was actually rated as free in the media. Mm -hmm. And as Beijing's influence and, and general restrictions on press freedom have tightened, uh, Hong Kong has declined dramatically into partly free. And, and just, just really, when we look and do some graphs, you really see the, 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 the restrictions increasing and, and the shadow from Beijing. Some of it's very obvious, 
and some of it's much more behind the scenes pressure on owners to and others in Hong Kong to limit of Hong Kong people's freedoms. And that's what you're seeing in this example with the the law too. It's right. Hong Kong officials introducing something um, that that would endanger Hong Kong people's freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we need to know then about uh, Carrie Lam, who is, I, I guess, the title is the chief executive of Hong Kong? Is is Carrie then uh, answerable to uh, to Beijing? Absolutely. I think the first thing to know is that Hong Kong has this very weird semi-democratic system where the chief executive is basically elected not by all of the people, um, as you would have in normal democratic systems, but rather by a select committee of of individuals who are, for the most part, uh, loyal to Beijing. And I think that's the challenge that not only Carrie Lam, but her predecessors have faced because uh, they're governing people um, in, a, in, a, in a society that is actually used to a relatively high level of freedom because there are protections and a relative rule of law. It's not like in China, but ultimately she's really answerable to, to Beijing. And what we've seen in the last few years has been more manipulation and pressure on the legislature and really reducing the power of the democratic camp um, in the legislature which is also part of what brings these kinds of crises because they're no longer able in the same way uh, to push back against problematic legislation like they might have been in the past. Yeah, well, and, and certainly this legislation is problematic, and it's uh, definitely been the um, the spark for these protests. But I guess is, is the law also a broader symbol then of this uh, erosion of, of freedom and, and autonomy in Hong Kong? Absolutely. And I think it's also coming on the heels of a number of cases of people who have actually been abducted from Hong Kong into China, or in one case, a fellow who was involved in selling books critical of Beijing that was abducted from Thailand. And so I think it's those kinds of examples that make people in Hong Kong already feel that what they do in Hong Kong could be punished by China. And then here comes a law that would actually give even clearer authority um, to both the Hong Kong and Beijing governments uh, to take, um, you know, to, to basically take people from Hong who are in Hong Kong back to China. I think what's unusual about this legislation is that it wouldn't only be people in Hong Kong, people visiting Hong Kong, people from the United States, from Canada, from, from anywhere in the world who might have gone on the wrong side of Beijing could potentially uh, be targeted and arrive in Hong Kong at the airport. Uh, and and be, be be taken off to China. So I think that's part of what's actually really concerned members of the business and legal communities that you might not normally hear speaking up for democracy and human rights because they're afraid of of, of, of upsetting Beijing. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and certainly make the point about uh, Canadian citizens uh, the the risk they face. As you're probably all aware, we're in the midst of a situation yeah. with China where they've detained two Canadian citizens, and we're very concerned about their well being. Uh, so, yeah, the, the idea that uh, Americans or Canadians visiting Hong Kong could also fall under this extradition law is, is certainly something I think people need to be aware of. Now, what is the status of, of that law now? Well, the latest, um, you know, which is quite a relief, I think, to a lot of people uh, and, and a real to the credit of, of all of the individuals pushing back in Hong Kong is that it's been suspended. Um, but I think there's a fear that it could then be introduced at any time, that the mm-hmm. current process has been suspended, that the leadership in Hong Kong is t- trying to buy time. They don't want to have any more uh, confrontations between police and unarmed protesters that have really gotten some bad press, deservedly, for the Hong Kong government. And so they're basically saying, well, we'll put this on the back burner. 
Now, it's tricky because in the past, there have been other bad laws in Hong Kong that have been put in the back burner and ultimately weren't reintroduced. But essentially, the, 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 the demonstrators and, and the protesters um, and just many Hong Kong citizens, because when you have two million people take to the streets, it's not just a small group of protesters. Uh, they don't trust. They don't trust Carrie Lam. They don't trust the Hong Kong government or Beijing that this won't be reintroduced again. And so they're really pushing for it to be taken off the table entirely. And many people are calling for Lam to resign herself. Mm-hmm. Now, in the meantime, just a few days ago in the U.S. Congress, uh, something called the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act was introduced. So what can countries then like the U.S. and Canada and, and others do to support people in Hong Kong? Well, I think what we've seen, you're seeing is you've seen a lot of uh, statements of support and solidarity, and that's really important. I think one of the reasons why Freedom House was really excited to see this act introduced in China is because it has a little bit more teeth. Mm-hmm. It basically, <clears throat> there are various things, at least under U.S. law, that because Hong Kong is more autonomous, is relatively autonomous from China, has traditionally had a stronger, um, you know, rule of law and independent judiciary, certainly compared to China's because of the British, the British um, colonial legacy, that Hong Kong has a different status that really has financial implications for the, for the, the city. And I think in introducing this act, one of the things the members are saying is that, look, this needs to be because of the threats to Hong Kong's autonomy and rule of law that we're seeing, this uh, status really needs to be reassessed on a regular basis. We can't take it for granted. And so one of the things it does is it calls for that. And I think that really sends a signal that to, to the Hong Kong and to Beijing indirectly that, look, if this is going to happen, then you're going to start possibly seeing changes to U.S. policy that could have real financial consequences for Hong Kong. The other thing is that it gives the potential to impose individualized sanctions on particular officials from Hong Kong or China who are, who are responsible for kidnappings and renditions, for example, of booksellers and journalists, or in other ways being complicit in suppressing freedom. So I think that, too, takes a very uh, individualized approach uh, to really make officials in Hong Kong you know, re-examine their cost-benefit analysis as they're making some of these kinds of decisions uh, under Beijing's pressure. Well, we'll see where this all goes in the days and weeks ahead. Much more at freedomhouse.org. Sarah, thanks so much for the insight. Appreciate you joining us here today. My pleasure. All the best. Sarah Cook, a senior research analyst, Freedom House, director of the China Media Bulletin, also author of The Battle for China's Spirit. Uh, so keeping a close eye on what's happening in Hong Kong, where, yeah, there, there has been a, a disturbing erosion of what is supposed to be that autonomy in Hong Kong and uh, the Chinese government asserting itself there. We've seen, I think, through, through the bravery and persistence of these protesters, a very strong and powerful message being sent. And images that the rest of the world can't help but pay attention to. Right When you hear about a few thousand people who have taken to the streets, okay, well, that's, that's uh, impressive, I guess. But when you hear about hundreds of thousands, millions taken to the streets, that gets people's attention. And that's what we've seen in recent days in Hong Kong. And there have been... Uh, certainly examples of uh, the overreach by security officials, violent police crackdowns. I mean, it's not Beijing, but it's, it is it is still risky, even in Hong Kong, to turn out in such numbers. But they have continued to do so in order that the world can see what is happening. And it is starting to get a lot more attention.
a new study published today in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, JAMA Pediatrics, looking at sexting. And it's something we hear a lot about these days, the concern that young people are engaging in sexting and what the consequences of that might be. So the question of this study is to look at whether there's any kind of an association then between youth sexting and sexual behaviors and mental health and the finding that there may indeed be. So this is an analysis of almost two dozen other studies. So in total, that's over 41,000 participants in those studies. So quite a data set they're looking at here finds that teen sexting is associated with a bevy of risk factors for youth, including multiple sexual partners, lack of contraception use, and mental health problems like anxiety, depression, delinquent behavior, and substance use. So it certainly sounds like cause for concern. Joining us to talk more about this study uh, is its lead author, uh, Camille Moore, a master's student at the University of Calgary's Determinants of Child Development Lab. Camille, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me. All right. So, I, I mean, the term sexting, I think most people have an idea of what that means, but is, is there kind of a, a clear and specific definition that we're talking about in this context? So, generally, sexting uh, refers to the exchange of sexual text messages, photos, or videos over technological devices. Um, within the research, this definition varies a little bit, but um, generally, we get the idea that it's exchanging these sorts of communications um, over smartphones, and other media devices. Okay. So it, it, it includes communications, not, not exclusively then the sharing of images, but obviously that, that's a part of it too, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily include the, the sharing of images or videos. Not necessarily. It can include text messages as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I suppose even going back before the internet, before social media, young people were engaging in sexual activity, uh, maybe having those kinds of conversations that are being uh, had over... Uh, over text. What's different then about the technology component? Mm -hmm. So generally the conversation is kind of shifting towards viewing uh, these sorts of communications over technology as sort of a normative part of adolescent development. It's just now there's there's traces of them essentially, so um, evidence of these communications occurring. So a lot of the uh, sort of fear or alarm comes around having these images distributed without consent. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, then, when we look at the, um, the risk factors, is, is the sexting leading to the risk factors? Are the risk factors leading to, to the sexting? What, what do we see as, as the correlation here? Mm-hmm. So that's a great question, and the answer to that is that we don't know yet. So based on our findings, we only see that there is an association, so that there's a link between sexting and sexual behaviors and between sexting and a variety of mental health factors. But we can't necessarily say that one leads to the other or vice versa. Um, so one potential explanation could be that youth who are engaging in certain risky behaviors may be more likely to be ga- engaging in other potentially risky behaviors mm-hmm. like sexting. But at the moment, we can't parse out um, what exactly the uh, directional association is. Right. Well, and certainly one of the issues that we become uh, more aware of through, through some high-profile incidents has been the, the sharing after the fact of, of these kinds of images. And, and a young person thinks that they're sharing something with uh, you know, their boyfriend or girlfriend, and, and that ends up getting shared elsewhere, and, and the kinds of mental health impact that can have from that kind of humiliation. I mean, is, mm-hmm. is that part of what this, this looked at? So that's something that we definitely um, are uh, trying to spread a message about is the fact that this is part of a larger conversation, not just, you know, sexting is associated with risk, but the fact that we need to be talking about um, how consent plays into into sexting and into these sorts of communication. So what does it mean when someone forwards their image to you um, or forwards somebody's 
somebody else's image to you, how does consent play into that? So um, this is also talking about things like digital citizenship, which is being safe and ethical and respectful in one's online communications. And these are conversations that aren't necessarily happening um, at home or in schools. Right. And I know there's been uh, some concern raised in the U.S. You, you do have some situations, some American jurisdictions where that kind of thing can even be treated as, as child pornography. And you got young people who are finding themselves in, in very deep trouble as a result of this. I mean, it, maybe young people just really don't understand, though, the, the implications of this, what their obligations are, what their expectations are. And, and does that then mm-hmm. speak to a need for a lot more education? Absolutely. Uh, We definitely think so. So the fact is that mm, the messages around this tend to be quite um, alarmist and uh, sort of spreading a message of abstaining from these Mm -hmm. sorts of behaviors. But if we're not kind of opening up the conversation with youth about the potential consequences, um, allowing them to ask questions about it, then they're not really equipped with the tools or the knowledge that they need to navigate their development in a very technological environment. Right. And so does that speak to a need maybe to, to modernize in particular the, the sex ed curriculum so that it addresses these matters? Definitely. So kind of bringing in digital citizenship into that conversation, into sexual education, healthy relationship development, um, and sexting is a part of that as well because it's part of the sort of landscape that youth are facing currently. Right. Because, you know, where, where's that line between what would be considered a sharing of affection and, and crossing a line in, into something more, more troubling or concerning? Mm-hmm. And it's definitely uh, a fine line that youth are trying to navigate on their own. Um, so bringing up this topic with them, perhaps, you know, walking them through scenarios such as what would you do if, you know, someone asked you for an image or if you received one mm-hmm. and kind of going through that problem-solving um, situation with them can open up that conversation and allow them to think about, you know, what could the potential consequences of this be? What are my motivations for engaging in this, et cetera? Right. Uh, I, I mean, there's, there's the peer pressure component, I, I guess, that would come into play there. I mean, is there also a question then of... Uh, receiving these kinds of texts, receiving these kinds of images unsolicited, is, mm-hmm. is that a concern? Uh, I mean, absolutely. And then the question is, how ethical is it to be sending these images to um, to individuals who haven't requested, haven't asked for it, uh, and doing so in an unsolicited way? And that also needs to be talked about as well, is um, how are you engaging in these kinds of communications, and what does this mean for the recipients of your messages as well? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, these kinds of issues, too. I mean, it's not just obviously then something that, that schools or the curriculum has to deal with. I mean, what, what about parents? What, what do parents need to take from this? Mm-hmm. So we definitely think that, you know, uh, typically these conversations aren't necessarily happening in the home, and that's an excellent place for these to be happening with a trusted adult um, and with parents. So uh, we definitely think that, you know, opening up those kinds of scenarios and those those topics of conversation with with your kids is a really great way to kind of um, get them thinking about this. It's certainly, look, I mean, this is it can be a difficult conversation to have, and I think even for kids too that there can be even after the fact if if kids realize that maybe they've done something they shouldn't have. Uh, mm-hmm. There's the regret, but there can be associated with that uh, a lot of embarrassment or or a lot of guilt, right? Absolutely, and a lot of the message tends to um, sort of. Uh, act very punitively towards those who are sending these images of themselves. But really, it needs to go both ways. There's a lot of um, sort of shame and guilt that's kind of bred into how we're taught about sexuality in our culture, especially as it pertains to young people. So shifting the conversation towards talking about 
you know, not only the senders, but also the receivers who are now in possession of someone else's um, content needs to be uh, addressed as well. Yeah, well, certainly some very important issues. Camille, thank you for joining us here today. Appreciate the conversation on this. Thank you so much for having me. All right, take care. Uh, that is Camille Moray, a master's student at the University of Calgary's Determinants of Child Development Lab and the lead author on this study, which, as mentioned, published this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.